I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Uh, by the end of the 1970s, I was just starting to get to the point that Aristotle had reached about two and a half thousand years before, which is understanding that the scale of things makes a difference to how they operate. Um, Aristotle's example was that if you scale a mouse up, its legs aren't strong enough. You have to, you have to scale the legs up much more than you scale the height. Um, I had also started to notice that the same thing was true of time, that duration actually made a difference not only of degree but of kind. And I had noticed that societies that thought in terms of weeks and months tended to think differently than societies that thought in terms of years and decades. Now, in 1978, I moved to New York, a very fast and at that time quite dangerous and pretty dysfunctional city. And I noticed that everybody there was passing through, actually. There were very few people who felt that they were New Yorkers who lived in New York. They were people who were on their way to somewhere else. And so there was an attitude of being in the city for a short term, uh, using the city as a springboard to move on to something else. Um, what that meant was that there was a, a very dysfunctional civil society. <laughs> Things didn't work very well. The city was falling apart and, in fact, during that time, I think, went bankrupt at one point. Um, I, I came up with this idea that there was something called the short now, and New York was, was living in the short now, in the sense that if you said to somebody, I would meet artists and I'd say, what are you working on? And they would tell me what they were working on that week, not what their life project was, or even their project for this year was, but what they were doing that week, or even that day. And it seemed that their horizons, their time horizons, were very, very short. This made for a very exciting city, because things were constantly changing. It was like living in a fashion store. Um, but it didn't make for a very functioning, smooth-running city. So having come up with the idea of that everybody there was living in the short now, I posed the opposite idea, which was the thought that the societies that I might prefer to live in were long-now societies. And in fact, subsequently, I met Stuart and various others discovered that they were thinking along the pretty much the same lines. Peter Schwartz, one of our co-founders, was at that time working on a book called The Long View, <coughs> which was a book about business, trying to think of business in the long term. Stuart had been working for many years on projects that had very long-term ramifications. And so we came together for this project, which eventually took the name The Long Now Foundation. We've only got a short time here, so I'm now going to hand over to Alexander, who, who's the director of the Long Now Foundation, who will tell you something about what we do. The, uh, the projects of the Long Now Foundation really started with an idea by Danny Hillis, uh, who's a, a computer scientist who had this idea of a monument scale, all mechanical, 10,000-year clock. A, a physical artifact that if you went to visit it, in fact, the, the going to visit it um, 
you would have different conversations about time and about your place in it than you would if this was not a physical artifact. And I think this is very much along the lines of what Neil Stevenson was talking about with making this eternal coin idea a physical thing, that, that physical objects have a very different um, ability to change conversation, where if we, just had, if we only had conferences, um, the ideas would be fleeting. But if we go ahead and build a physical object, that it could be much longer lasting. And that if you, if you take these design principles that Danny Hill started with, longevity, maintainability, transparency, evolvability, and scalability, these are all the things that we started measuring all clock designs against. But it is also uh, an interesting set of criteria to measure anything against, the eternal coin, any financial uh, instrument that you might be investing in. Back in 1999, I'm just going to do a, a quick tour of the, the geeky engineers version of, uh, of what we're working on uh, in very physical objects or initially. This was the first prototype of the clock. This is actually uh, housed here in London at the Science Museum. It's at the, at the end of the Making of the Modern World exhibit. Um, and I'll just talk very quickly. One of the engineering problems that we had to solve when designing a clock that had to last 10,000 years is that how do we keep the clock synchronized to a now point? And that we chose to use the sun. So every time the sun, anytime it's a sunny day at noon, it, we focus light through a lens. It heats up a piece of metal. That piece of metal expands. We get a mechanical trigger. So now you have a clock that keeps solar time. Now the problem with that is that what we keep uh, with pendulums is called absolute time, which doesn't vary based on where the Earth is in its orbit. And this is the analemma. It's also very similar to the Mobius strip, I notice. Um, this is the sun uh, at the same time of day taken throughout the year. Um, and so this constitutes a problem that we had of rectifying solar time to absolute time. The solution to that problem uh, Danny Hillis came up with, which is this physical shape. So this is that equation as it evolves for 10,000 years, that equation of plus or minus 15 minutes that rectifies that analemma to a straight line of noon um, is changing very slightly as the Earth wobbles on its axes every 26,000 years and the Earth slows its rotational rate by about a second a century. And of course, the other innovation that we had to do was the extra zero in front of the Gregorian year date for a five-year or a five-digit date. Since then, we've been working on larger prototypes. This is an orrery. Uh, shows the currently or the human eye visible planets, and uh, this shows Mercury out through Saturn and is the part of the clock that would allow someone who doesn't understand our calendrics to look at the sky, look at our clock, and understand what exactly this thing might do, even if it was not working. We've also purchased the site for the monument scale version. We purchased this mountain in eastern Nevada. Um, it's called Mount Washington. It's uh, about as far as you can get from civilization in North America. Um, it's a five-hour drive to any major airport. It's one of the darkest sky places in North America. Uh, pretty amazing sky viewing. It also has this amazing trait of not only very competent rock that we can put the clock into, the idea is to build the clock underground where it can last very long, but it also is populated by the oldest living organisms in the world, the bristlecone pine. Some of these trees have been dated to 4,800 years old. Um, and so uh, they themselves are are a type of clock. We have uh, scientists who do core drilling of, of, of these and can tell us the climate and how many years that there was no sunshine, for instance, on that one site over the last 10,000 years by comparing dead and live tree rings. Um, right now, we're actually designing the machines to build the underground space. 
Um, we're combining the, tech, the diamond saw technology that's now being used in Carrara, Italy for quarrying marble with some of the, the mining technology that, um, that was being developed in Sudbury, Canada. This is a, a prototype. Oh, this is actu the actual saw. It's a, a nine-foot reach diamond-toothed uh, robotic chainsaw. So we've roboticized a, uh, a saw to allow us to carve three-dimensional underground spaces that can uh, be strong enough to, to uh, handle the seismic issues of eastern Nevada. Uh, this saw has a nine-foot blade and a 32-foot reach and allow us to carve spiral underground staircases. <clears throat> the, um, so a as you can see, when, when you do start to solve problems very physically, you have to think about these things very differently. What are the hands of the people going to be like that might wind this clock? Are they going to have, you know, if you're building a spiral staircase, are you going to build a spiral staircase that has the same foot pitch that we now consider to be a normal foot pitch? If you've ever been on the Mayan pyramids, uh, you'll, you quickly realize that they had a very different idea of what a step was than we do. Um, the last couple projects that I'm talking, I'll talk about are, are information-based projects. Um, also, it, back in 1999, we started a, a project called the Rosetta Project. And we had thought, uh, probably naively, that we could just collect all the world's languages uh, in one place. They were probably already digitized, probably already online. And then we would uh, micro-etch them into a medium that could last for 10,000 years. And it turned out, of course, that nobody had ever put all that information together anywhere. So it began a 10-year effort, that, uh, or a 9-year effort. We just finished it this year. Um, but we have over 1,500 languages uh, micro-etched on this disk. This is the, uh, that's 13,000 pages micro-etched. Um, and we collected things like uh, the first three chapters of the Bible, which is one of the most trans translated things in the world, as well as maps and uh, basic information about all the, all the languages that we could find. And that's what those pages start to look like close up. And the last project that I'll talk about is Long Bets. This, was, uh, this was, came out of uh, one of Stuart Brand's ideas for a responsibility roster. And the idea is that if people, you know, often at conferences like this will make a prediction about what the future will be like. And they're very rarely held accountable for it. And one of the best ways to make those, those bets very real, of course, is to attach money to them. Uh, just this year, Warren Buffett bet protege partners over a 10-year period uh, commencing in January 1st, 2008 and ending uh, in 2017 that the S&P 500 will outperform a portfolio of hedge funds. Um, so far, we've just got the first update on the first year of that, and right now the, uh, the hedge funds are actually winning, amazingly, um, over, the the last, uh, over the last year. Um, but they bet a million dollars. We have probably about 80 or 90 bets and about 150 different predictions that are waiting for other, the other side to, uh, to take those bets. Um, and we plan on keeping these around long enough that not only can we say who won and who lost, but we can also take a look at these detailed arguments and see if the way people were thinking about the future, the arguments that they made, in fact, is there something extractable out of that that we can learn from? Th that will teach us how to think about our futures better. 
And I'll leave you with this one economic example of 10,000-year thinking. Uh, I was trying to think, actually, on the plane over here, is there a real 10,000-year uh, economic uh, example? And, and I was reminded of the Meslant barrier. And this is the, the barrier in, uh, in Holland. Uh, it was designed for a once-in-a-10,000-year event. No one's actually seen the storm that this thing is possibly designed for. The cost of building this is over 600 million euros. That's very, very expensive infrastructure, right? Hurricane Katrina was a once-in-a-century event. Killed over 1,800 people, and it's currently costing the United States $110 billion. So you basically get 100 times leverage for thinking on these timescales that the, that the Dutch are thinking uh, by simply thinking uh, a little bit ahead. You, d you do have to fund that infrastructure, uh, which is very difficult to do when things are all going just fine. But the day that that storm arrives, everyone wish you did. Thank you. Well, we were just getting this going in the 1990s. Danny Hillis and I, uh, we connected with Brian. We hired Alexander, who was then very young. And um, not, not quite as bald. I, I had hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So do we all. Um, I had a, a, a son named Noah who reads even more science fiction than I do. He was in his teens at that time. and. Uh, he said, uh, do you know about Robert Heinlein? Oh, come on, I grew up on Robert Heinlein. Do you know about a book by Robert Heinlein called Time for the Stars? I'm not sure I remember that one. Well, I can see why. It was written in 1956, and it's his only kind of grim novel. It's a downer. But the reason um, Noah told me about the book, I'll just read a few passages, is the idea is these are the first interstellar astronauts who are shaping up to go to the stars, Time for the Stars. And, uh, but the, the reason it is happening is there's this thing called we got interested in the purposes of the Long Range Foundation. Its coat of arms reads, Bread Cast Upon the Waters, and its charter is headed, Dedicated to the Welfare of Our Descendants. The charter goes on with a lot of lawyer's fog, but the way the directors have interpreted it is it has to spend money only on things that no government and no other corporation would touch. It wasn't enough for a proposed project to be interesting to science and socially desirable, it also had to be so horribly expensive that no one else would touch it, and the prospective results had to lie so far in the future that it could not be justified to taxpayers or shareholders. To make the LRF directors light up with enthusiasm, you had to suggest something that cost a billion or more, <coughs> that was back in the day when it meant something, <laughs> and probably wouldn't show results for 10 generations, if ever. Something like how to control the weather. They're working on that. The funny thing is that the bread cast upon the waters does come back 700-fold. The most preposterous projects made the LRF embarrassing amounts of money. Embarrassing to a nonprofit corporation, that is. Take space travel. It seemed tailor-made back a couple of hundred years ago for LRF since it was fantastically expensive and offered no probable results uh, comparable with the investments. So the Long Range Foundation stepped in after the military and everybody else gave up. And they happily began wasting money. It came at a time when the corporation, unfortunately, had made a few billion on the Thompson mass converter, which when they had expected to spend at least a century on pure research, since they could not declare a dividend, no stockholders, they had to get rid of the money somehow, and space travel looked like a swell rat hole to pour it down. <laughs> 
Even the kids know what happened to that. Ortega's torch made space travel easy inside the solar system and fast and cheap. And the one-way energy screen made colonization practicable and profitable. The Long Range Foundation could not unload fast enough to keep from making lots more money. So this, the Long Range Foundation, um, Brian came up with the idea of the Long Now, uh, all seemed to kind of blend in. And frankly, the idea of a long bank has been percolating in the background for a while. So we're you know, interested in what's being arrived at here. Um, I'm mainly in England now flogging a book called Whole Earth Discipline. And the, um, the connection here is I'm puzzled by the economics, the theory of infrastructure. Civilizations, cities, all these important things really, really depend on sewer systems that work. What you were saying about New York is the case. What uh, the lowlands that are below basically sea level, especially increasingly, uh, require serious infrastructure to keep going. But I have not been able to find a really good economic theory of infrastructure. Basically, it's been cut and try for centuries. And people come up with these, the, the reality is we come up with these grand schemes, uh, financial excuses are made, uh, bonds are passed and everything goes forward. The finances don't work out anything like what people planned. Uh, if they're initial investors, they lose money, and then somebody else buys into it, and, and uh, the sunk costs are ignored, and they move ahead. And we see it with wind farms. We see it with nuclear. Basically, it's the third owner who gets to make money. But we build these things anyway. So that's pretty interesting. I would love to see a real theory, economic theory, of infrastructure go forward, not only for the build infrastructure, because you look at the bridges over the Thames, <clears throat> they make London, in a sense, possible as a, as a river-straddling city. But the Thames itself is infrastructure. So the bridge is infrastructure, the river is infrastructure. There's a lot of natural infrastructure that can be thought of and can be funded and can be maintained the same way we think about built infrastructure. And we're just now realizing that these so-called ecosystem services, you blow them up to the large scale in the long term, climate is one of them. A stable climate is all that civilization has known for the last 10,000 years. Basically, we had the stability to make agriculture go forward, make cities go forward, and civilization was able to invent itself in this good, large-scale, long-term weather that we've had. We're now really realizing the byproduct of all that success of ours is that we may be um, <laughs> messing with the healthiness of the ecosystem of the weather, very complex system that we uh, require in order to function. And so we're having to step up to an infrastructural relationship to the atmosphere, the climate of the whole damn planet. This is a larger scale issue than the Thames or London or England or the global north. You know, five out of six people live in developing countries. They are busily getting out of poverty and building cities faster than anybody ever has and all the rest of it. So the scale of the issues we're now dealing with, I think, require um, comfort with thinking long term, which is all long now is about, is making people ideally comfortable thinking in multi-hundred, multi-thousand year terms. And please, we would like uh, some long finance to do all this with. <laughs> Lots to talk about. I mean, I'm a TV reporter. I'm pretty used to the working on a very short-term basis. Mm. Some of the financiers here have been accused <coughs> of working on a rather short-term basis. What is the essence of the 10,000-year horizon? Is it totemic? I mean, are you just happy to 
get people's time horizons out to you know, just 50 or 100 years, why 10,000 years? The number came from Peter Schwartz, one of our founding directors, and uh, was here for a long time at Royal Dutch Shell, head of scenario planning there, and did this book called The Art of the Long View. And Peter said, um, civilization sort of started with towns and agriculture. That happened basically uh, 10,000 years ago. The ice retreated in the northern hemisphere at that time. It's a, a good kind of start point. And if you assume, then you come to a, a, a scientific idea, which is that it's always helpful to assume that whatever you're looking at, you're sort of in the normative, you're in the middle of it. And so if civilization has lasted 10,000 years so far, you assume we're in the middle of that story, then the next 10,000 years fills out the symmetry. Brian came up with the term the long now, so for us the long now is the, the current 20,000 years. And the idea is to, just as we think of last week and next week as sort of the operative now that we work in, you know, can you think about the last 10,000 years the way you think about last week? And can you think about the next 10,000 years the way you think about next week? And if we can accomplish that, then, uh, then we start waving our hands fast. We assume good things will happen. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, when you um, put these sorts of ideas out there, do you get the response? I mean, are you expecting the response from the sort of average person in the street to sort of care about the utility of somebody in 50, 100, 500,000, 10,000 years' time as much as they care about somebody right now? Well. <clears throat> Back to a point that Alexander made, that the physicality of something makes a very big difference to it. If it's just a thought experiment, it's, it's forgotten as a thought experiment could be. But the fact that we've actually started making these clocks, we're currently building one in Texas. We've got a prototype in the Science Museum here. Um, the fact that they have actually started to take physical reality has really made people interested in them in a different way. So people s start to think about the design problems. They say, well, how can you possibly know that there won't be another Dark Ages mm. in the next thousand years, for example? And we say, well, of course we can't. But just the fact of people engaging their mind in that way, to think a thousand years in the future is already, even at a, the sketchiest level, is far beyond what any of us ever normally think. So, so the fact of this thing coming into existence and being more than just a metaphor makes a big difference, I think. People do start to think about it. But we have a, we have a culture, do we not, that's incredibly fast, incredibly disposable. It's the, in many ways the very opposite of some of the stuff that we've just been talking about. Well, really, the seed of this, as um, the seed of the clock, really came from Danny Hillis, who, was, who had at the time just built the world's fastest computer. Um, and he was very aware of how finally we're slicing time up now. You know, we're, we're talking in much, much faster periods of time than nanoseconds. Um, and he, he was aware that our horizons were, we, we were intensely interested in the, in the very near future and correspondingly disinterested in the far future. I mean, we have a, we have a sort of long now parable that we tell, which I, I think is a true story. Um, new College in Oxford uh, being English, of course, it's not that new. It was built, I think, in 1480. <laughs> and in the 1960s, the great big beams across the top of New College, big oak beams, they're enormous, they're that big, um, started to decay. And so the uh, college bursar went to the head woodsman because 
Oxford owns a lot of land all over England, went to the head woodsman and said, um, do you think anywhere that we have wood to replace these beams? And the woodsman said, well, yes, sir. Funny you should ask. <laughs> and it turned out that when the college was built, they had planted another grove of oaks to replace the beams. So those oaks had been quietly growing for 500 years. Um, and in fact, they, they are now the new beams in New College Oxford. So it's, it's interesting. They plant another set of... They planted some new ones, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting that we as humans now are at the, at the very peak of our power. We've never been more powerful. You know, any one of us is as powerful as half an army was a thousand years ago. We've never been more powerful, but we've never been less responsible about, about future events. We, we tend not to think in those very long terms like 500 years or even 25 years, actually. See, it's quite ironic if it, I mean, okay, let me throw this out to Xander. When I travel around doing economic reports all around the world, am I, I, maybe you're gonna think I'm making a conceptual mistake here, but the people planning more for the next decades appear to be the people that are less democratic. Is there a structural issue there? Mm. Well, I, I think that you do see worldwide, there is an interesting, um, there's an interesting thing that happens if, you, uh, if you're going to rule a country for your whole life as a monarch, for instance, you, are, you do think longer term than a democratically elected system. Um, and you know, England with its dual systems, I think, has get some of that. It was just, I think Brian just, just sent me a, a set of photographs of uh, the, the current queen with all the presidents since, was it Eisenhower? Yes. And of the United States, and you, you realize that you know, where else do you see that kind of consistency except in a, in a monarchy? And, and, you know, that's kind of fallen from rule to more ceremonial role, but the, the, even that ceremonial role has a consistency that you don't see in normal democratic systems, which are, are by definition uh, a churning system, and they, they, they fit well with the, um, the capitalist systems that have also driven our, our financial problems with that kind of churn as well. Um, in the growth phase, but they don't fit well when you have something that looms over 80 or 90 years, like the uh, like the the property values dropping only once in 90 years. How does that? How how can a politician who's elected for four years plan for around um, the property values, which everything is leveraged on, falling? In, at some indeterminate point in their future. They, they just can't, so. It, it's, I think in Germany, there, there was a move to alter the constitution to account for the uh, future rights of future generations. I don't, I don't know where that went. I, I, I didn't quite keep a track of that. Perhaps the ambassador can tell us later, but um, um, do you think that the normal churning of democracy every four, five, 10 years, there'd be some way to kind of take account of longer term generational equity not just over 20, 40 years, but over hundreds of years? Well, I mean, so far the answer is no. Um, we, we, I, don't, I can't think of any good examples. Well, likewise with finance. Um, you know, the problem of discounting the future. That you raised the question earlier of how do you fund a forest? And uh, you know, putting money in a forest where you get return basically in 70 years' time versus putting the same amount of money in the bank where you get the same amount of return in a lot shorter than 70 years you know, what just happened? Doesn't make sense. Mm. So uh, every now and then somebody liquidates a forest. 
company came named Maxim, nice name, came into Northern California, bought up a nice old family firm that was logging redwoods sustainably in Northern California and cut all the damn things down because it made economic sense to do that. And, and I know environmentalists and economists and so on have been trying to figure out how do you blend in the externalities and all the rest of this. Um, I don't think we've solved the problem of discounting the future yet in finance, just as I don't think we've solved the problem of long-term responsibility in democracy yet. So one place you might look for some sorts of solutions to this are the, are the most long-term businesses we know that are religions, basically. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing about religions <laughs> is that they, they offer other rewards than financial ones. <laughs> <laughs> Now, <laughs> I happen not to believe in them myself, but I'm starting to think I should encourage other people to. <laughs> <laughs> but you Most of the people that's gospel singing. You could, so yeah, I believe in gospel religion. singing. Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> that's a long story. <laughs> do, do you think that this mindset uh, is consistent with being free marketeer? Can this be achieved through the market? Well, how free is free? because none of us are really free marketeers. You'll notice that even in countries that, such as America that claim to be free market, there are, for instance, restrictions on monopolies. There, there are always restrictions. Nobody actually really wants a free market because it's utterly chaotic and you're just as likely to get slaughtered whatever position you are in the free market. So, so I question that phrase. What, what you're really talking about is on, on the long spectrum between total control and total freedom. Where do you want to situate yourself? And that's, that's all that happens in capitalist countries. They, they argue about which position along the line they are. It's not about free or unfree. It's about where on the spectrum you are. Okay, and Stuart, you know, following, sorry, go, go on. Uh, we keep coming back to physicality. And um, the eternal coin paper that is in everybody's lap, I thought the, the most telling thing in it um, when you're looking at sort of what, were, what sustained value at various times in human history, and one that jumped out at me was land, which sort of maps onto something I've noticed, which is even longer lived than religions, is some cities. Um, you know, Jericho's been a town for 10,000 years. Um, Jerusalem has changed religion 36 times and been captured and burned and all this kind of stuff, and it's still, you know, it was an important city 5,000 years ago, and it is now. So cities have this capability of this enormous longevity and enormous adaptability. But a peculiarity of cities is that they are actually quite physical. There's a place, there's you know, the land, there's the real estate value. And so three things I now want is I want theory of infrastructure, please, economic theory. I want an economic theory of uh, the informal economy, which is sustaining most of the developing world and where people are getting the hell out of complete poverty into uh, toward participating in the global economy. And I would like a theory of real estate that would reflect basically the entire history of real estate. There's probably 2,000 histories of architecture, all of which are frivolous. <laughs> and there's not a single history of real estate, mm -hmm. which would tell us why these cities have this longevity in some cases, why some are really longer lived than others and the rest of it. And for all I knew, the fundamental coin of living on a planet may well be expressible in land terms, in real estate terms, and that's what we should conjure around. Mm -hmm. Let me bring in something very kind of recent where the world was invited to think about the long-term consequences of their actions and share out the burden 
and it didn't seem to work out. We we're talking about Copenhagen. It doesn't seem when the world has been invited that they play ball with the idea of looking after future generations and sharing that burden equitably across <coughs> nations. Are you, would you be depressed by that type of thing? Well, I think it, it fits into the category that, that Brian said is that you know, it, it just depends on what system you invite everyone in to play in. And in, in Copenhagen, they, they invite 192 countries, each one with veto power. Like, there's no system in the world that could function that way. And so it's set up for failure. Um, if you set the rules for failure, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. um, so the, um, you know, currently our, our capitalist systems are set for a very short-term return. Um, you know, just as, as Stuart's been pointing out in his, in his recent book, that until you make coal expensive, more expensive than carbon-free alternatives, you, every country is going to burn their coal till it's gone. Um, and so there's, there's, there's no way around that. So you, you do have to set rules, and you just have to pick and choose what those rules are. And so um, I think it, it comes down to game theory and, mm. and how you're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, they, don't even, they can't even agree on sharing the benefits of trade. It doesn't seem particularly likely that you'd agree on sharing the uh, economic, short-term economic disbenefits of, of taking, making sacrifices for future generations. Um, does this require basically stronger international coordination, stronger international government governance <coughs> structures, basically. My expectation is <coughs> if climate keeps scaring us, and it shows signs of doing that, and we don't get ahead of mitigation or cutting back on greenhouse gases in time, that we will take geoengineering seriously, direct intervention in the climate. And climatologists have seen some ex successful examples of that, of, of uh, you know, a volcano goes up in the Philippines in 1991, and the next year, uh, you've got a lot more polar bear cubs because the whole planet cooled down by half a degree Celsius. Okay, so that works. Um, and so there are now half a dozen going on to a dozen good projects of how you might cool the Earth directly just by going at climate. That's the easy problem. The hard problem is the political one. Because you know one of the schemes is you could actually keep the planet cool while we double our carbon dioxide for an expense of maybe 300 million a year. That's nothing. Uh, there are wealthy people, probably some in this room, who could just do that. Um, China could certainly just do that. And China may well have few reason to. They're having serious droughts in the Northwest. They're getting sea level problems and extreme weather problems on the South Coast. And they could just say, well, screw it. Let's just put a bunch of sulfur dust in the stratosphere and fix that little problem. Well, all the rest of us who live downwind of China, which is everybody, would say, actually, that's an act of war. So, because we don't, the UN is not going to step up to that. The market is not going to step up to that. The current international relations that we have are not yet in place to work out the norms and the agreements and the transparencies and all the rest of it to where you can start doing geoengineering in a serious way. So my expectation is, and I think Brian loves this and should probably carry it forward a bit, is that more increments of global governance will emerge from the climate issues that we'll be dealing with over the next basically over this century. Is that your view, Brian? Yeah. Well, people are terrified, some of them, by the idea of global governance, um, especially English people, actually. <laughs> Unless they're in charge. <laughs> Not yes, so they're they're in charge. Yeah. We have a whole political party organized to prevent that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, but as I always point out to them, we have been living with many, many examples of it for a long time. For instance, none of us as far as I know, are complaining about the International Postal Union. 
which was formed in 1879 and which is one of the most successful forms of global cooperation ever. Um, every country in the world belongs to it, and it's, it's a very sophisticated mechanism that ensures that if you post a letter in Birmingham, it gets delivered in Kabul or wherever, you know. And all you know about it is that you bought a stamp. It's an amazing system, and we've all been doing it for years. It's a form of all these complicated reciprocal agreements between 165 countries, I think, belong to it. Um, it's, it's a form of governance, you know. We're quite happy with it. We don't complain about it. Um, and there, there are many other examples. That some of them are really very obscure, like there is uh, an international agreement uh, for the genetic labeling of mice, <laughs> um, which, which has 59 countries subscribed to it. Do you know this? <laughs> Have you never labelled a mouse? <laughs> right, we've got about a minute, and oh, sorry, uh, this yes, is, this is, this is maybe long for Nance, but we uh, we're going to be very tight on time. I'm going to. I want 30 seconds from each of you. <coughs> Had the eternal clock existed before Europe industrialised, how would the world be different now? Wow, Xander. <coughs> well, it's, it's always been our uh, fantasy that if we if we choose exactly the right mountain in exactly uh, the right place, that if we dig into it, we'll actually find the clock already there. So how would our world be different if we, if we were to all of a sudden find it or if it, we were to, to always had, have had it? Had and so, I mean, curiously, the person who connected uh, our two foundations, Neil Stevenson, played this out in a science fiction book uh, of another world that was ruled by... Uh, both a, a very fast civilization of mini malls and cell phones and a very slow civilization of academics um, and uh, thinkers that were thinking through the world's long-term problems. <coughs> and uh, it's, it's nearly a thousand pages long, so I, I, we probably shouldn't get into it there, but I'll, I'll just plug that as, your, as, as a way to possibly look at that. It's called solution. Anathem. Anathem. book is Anathem. It's great. The goal of the Long Now Foundation is uh, we'll know we've succeeded when long-term thinking is automatic and common instead of difficult and rare. Thanks, Stuart. Brian, last word. Goodbye. <laughs> 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 no, in, in answer, I'm trying to answer your question. We, in a sense, we do have some examples, as I said about religions, we do have some examples of of icons that have lasted for a very long time. My problem with religions is that I think they haven't generally inspired people to exactly the kind of behavior that I would like to see. But um, I, I do think we can take some strength from the fact that certain images and metaphors exist for very, very long periods. All sorts of civilizational change can happen, and they can stay in place. And so I think we're hoping that this would be one of those. Great. Well, thanks you so much for coming here, and uh, a round of applause for the This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.